Welcome to the Wildscast. Today's guest is David Lichtenstein. Mr. Lichtenstein is chairman and CEO of Lightstone, which he founded in 1988. He personifies Lightstone's commitment to the highest standards of quality, integrity, and value. He's built a reputation for his ability to navigate the real estate industry, identify successful real estate opportunities, and time the markets. Mr. Lichtenstein was appointed by New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio to the New York City Economic Development Corporation's Board of Directors. He serves on numerous other boards and is involved in many philanthropic and charitable endeavors. He also hosts the wildly popular podcast, Headlines. He's a real Torah scholar in his own right. He and Rabbi Wilds had a great conversation, which we hope you will enjoy. Okay, welcome everyone to uh, the uh, MGE podcast, um, otherwise known as Wildscast. I have the great honor and merit of being able to host someone I have an extraordinary amount of respect for, of a David Lichtenstein, its chairman and CEO of Lightstone, incredibly successful real estate development company, which he founded back in 1988. And Rabbi Lichtenstein has built a, an incredible reputation for his own ability to navigate the real estate industry. And he personifies Lightstone's commitment to the higher standards of quality and integrity. He is a true Torah scholar, having studied in various yeshivot and kolels. Uh, he has an enormously successful podcast, of which I'm a huge fan. Uh, it's called Headlines, probably the most listened to podcast in the Orthodox community. He's a tremendous philanthropist, helping many institutions, Jewish institutions throughout the world. And I had the great honor of getting to know um, David Lichtenstein this past summer in uh, the holy city of Muncie. Um, our family rented a place there, and we got to hear some of the brilliant Torah um, from Rabbi Lichtenstein and also saw what kind of reverence people hold him in. So, um, Rabbi David, before I even get started, what, you're, you're so beyond labels. What can I call you here? How, how should I refer to you? Just call me David or David or whatever, whatever you're comfortable. Um, thank you so much for joining us. It's an honor. It's nice to be here, and you do really wonderful work with your entire heart. You throw your heart and your being and everything you have into it. And it's really L'Shem Shemayim. And they call the bracha of Kalaiskim should fall on your head. Amen. Thank you. I. You know, I really appreciate that. For those of you who didn't follow that, that was a blessing. Now we're not even three minutes into it, and I already got a bracha to, uh, for, for those who devote themselves to the community. Um, your story is a very inspirational one to me, uh, David. Um, I did a little research, and uh, they say that you purchased your first property with a $12,000 down payment and maxed out credit cards. Uh, and since then, you've become one of the most successful real estate developers in the country. And more impressively, You've maintained yourself as a committed and observant Jew and developed yourself into an accomplished Torah scholar. Can you tell our listeners, you know, primarily MGE, as you know, is made up of 20s and 30s um, looking to advance their careers. That's the stage of life many of our participants and students are at. And they're exploring Judaism, many for the first time in their lives. What is your secret for staying religiously committed and successful in what you do professionally? Um, so, first of all, I, I don't consider myself like uber successful. I understand that you hike all these these titles, but in the United States, where you have businessmen whose the, the daily variance in their company stock price and their portion of it way exceeds anything I've ever done in my life. So it's hard to consider yourself uber successful in such an environment. So everything's relative. relative. But, you know, we have a choice. When we step back from the cacophony of, of the noise around us and the lie and social media and, and is Trump right or is he wrong and all these, like, you know, just this whirlpool of noise. Um, well, we really have a choice on our an existential choice. There are two paths. One is, is that our life is random. All of creation is a huge accident. And I'm part of just this event that happened that is meaningless, purposeless, and eventually I'll become mushroom uh, 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 fodder. That's one way to look at our existence. And the other way to look at our existence is, is that it's meaningful, it's purposeful. I have a mission. I was brought here to accomplish certain things. And all of creation has its mission. It's, it's part of a trajectory. And 
each one of these paths requires a tremendous amount of faith. Mm -hmm. like people call people who are religious faithful. But if you do a little bit of scientific digging, you realize that to believe the alternative requires a, a tremendous amount of faith. <clears throat> Let me give you a few examples. There was a there is a, a British uh, scientist, physicist, called Dr. Martin Rees. He's the Royal Astronomer, who won many awards. And he wrote a book called The Six Numbers. And basically, as a scientist, he wrote that it's an astonishing coincidence that six numbers had to happen at the time of the Big Bang, without which we would not exist. Well, let me give you an example of one. And there are actually 17 of them. He only goes through six, but since then it's been expanded. There's something called release velocity. When a, when a rocket leaves uh, uh, into the atmosphere, when it, when it takes off and leaves the atmosphere, if it would go too fast, there's no friction in space, it would just disappear. And that's not the intent, because they wanted to revolve around the Earth to rotate, right? To send signals. Mm -hmm. If it wouldn't be fast enough, it would turn back, it would, it would be a big crunch. It would come back and land on Earth, it would crash on Earth. So there's an exact velocity at which it leaves the atmosphere. And it's enough to propel it forward, but the Earth's gravity, on the other hand, pulls it back, so it, turn, it becomes an orbit around the Earth. Right? That's mm -hmm. Now, at the time of the Big Bang, Dr. Reese, as many other physicists have said this, if the Big Bang would have been too fast, it would have become the big dust. All of it would have just spread through some infinity. If it would have been too slow, it would have been the big crunch. Uh, it mm -hmm. had to be an exact velocity, and they've calculated to the, the velocity, it's uh, 2 to the 17th power. 17 zeros afterwards. To give you an example of, of, of how much that is, all the blades of grass on Earth are around 2 to the 17th power. So for that random to have happened, it would be sort of marked like you telling your son, could you go out and pick a blade of grass? It's on one of the continents. I don't know which one. If you pick the right blade of grass, it could be North America, South America, Asia, Europe, Africa, <clears throat> right, Antarctica, there's no bliss there. If you, if you found them, the right country, right? Uh, the right continent, the right country, the right city, the right neighborhood, the right backyard. And now you have to go choose one. If you choose the right one, we exist. And if not, not. Let's say your odds aren't so good, right? That's one of the events this two to the seven, that happened to happen at the time of the Big Bang, as well as five other ones. One which is two to the 125th power. Lombada, Risma. I mean, I can go through them with you, but the higher mathematics. Actually, was so fascinated by it. I hired the head of the physics department at Columbia. To, we spent months going through it together. <laughs> but but so, so here's the thought. I actually interviewed Dr. Rees, and, and he's an atheist. And I asked him why. So your point, I mean, you're trying to demonstrate that it requires tremendous faith. Tremendous faith, and it's illogical. Not any uh, supernatural cause behind the uh, We figured that we, Dr. Rees actually said the, the, the chances of all these six happening, right, at one time, he said it would be like buying a lottery ticket mm -hmm. and winning every day for the rest of your life. <laughs> So, so we talk about faith. It requires an extraordinary amount. In fact, I asked Dr. Rees, I said, um, why aren't you religious? He's an atheist. He said, because science believes that if you can't prove or disprove anything, right? We believe every theory has to be able to be proven or disproven. And religion, you can't prove or disprove. Right. And, then, and then after, at the end of the conversation, I asked him, I said, doctor, if it's so incredibly impossible, how does our universe exist? And he said, which he writes in the book, he said he believes in multiverses. Right. That there are, there are infinite number of universes, so an, inf an infinite number of times you do something, it'll happen. So I said, Dr. Rees, how, how large is our universe? It's 14 billion light years across, right? We can't even fathom traveling one light year. Imagine, so I said, so can you prove this? So, so you're telling me the only way this could have occurred is that there are multiverses. The only way to know there are multiverses is if somebody was standing at the curtain at the end of the 14 billion light years and says, heck, there's a lot more universes out there. It's beyond absurd to think you could ever prove this. He said, I agree. So I said, you don't believe in religion because it's not provable. The multiverse theory is certainly not provable. So then why are you an atheist? And he didn't have an answer for me. So my point is, both sides of this debate require immense amounts of faith. And to me, given the history that we've you know, received this from our parents, from our grandparents, and that it actually leads to a life that is meaningful, I'd much rather, I, I, I feel that this belief is more likely than the other belief. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
And that's a choice that we have to make. And, and, and it's a very important choice. And, and many people look back later on in their life and say, you know, I've lived a random life of mine in a way that it's not meaningful. And I've, if I had known earlier, I would have done things very differently. Wow. Wow. Thank you so much for answering that. By the way, uh, the multiverse theory, um, which, as you say, purports that there are possibly infinite alternate universes, um, you know, it is admitted within the world of science that it is not it's not really we're not capable of actually proving it. It's just an explanation to give enough time for the theory of random mutation and natural selection, which is the modern day evolutionary theory to explain you know, the complexity of human life. The only way you can you can somehow argue random mutation, uh, natural selection is if you have enough time. And the only way to get enough time is to believe in the multiverse theory, which is interesting, but it's it's sort of a theory that advanced out of the, the process of looking for more time. Look, it could be, and you're saying it beautifully, you could be, but, um, you know, and listen, you know, I'm in agreement. I think the, uh, the probability that there's a supernatural creator behind the complexity of, uh, of our own human anatomy and the world around us is so much greater. Um, I'm going to get back to your personal life, if you don't mind. And thank you so much for, for that discussion. Uh, any professional opportunities you've had to turn down because of your religious observance? Any real clashes? Or conversely, we can keep it positive, how has your devotion to Torah and mitzvot gotten you further, perhaps, in your career? So I think that we are, um, you know, I, I have a son who's a, a brilliant young fellow, and his name is Shragi. Mm-hmm. And he wanted to um, get a job at one of, you know, the top hedge funds, which he was in the world. And he was thinking, you know, his name is an impediment. And um, he was interviewed by a guy by the name of Papandopoulos. And he realized that maybe it wasn't an impediment. <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, like, you know, we've had governors like Schwarzenegger <laughs> to say nothing of the political incorrectness of his name, right? Right. And we have Budigeg, yeah, yeah. however, and, you know, Zbigniew Brzezinski. I mean, so I think here in the United States, I don't think religion... Um, really pre- presents an obstacle. Um, does it create any, you know, opportunities? I don't know. I would say I'm sort of neutral on it. I haven't seen it either way. But I think what it does do is um, is in business, you know, there's a story years ago where this, this old, pious little Jew, his house burned down. And in those days, it was pre-insurance. And if your house burned down, that means, you know, for most people, the house is maybe one of the largest investments they'll make. And they came to him, and he was in the synagogue, and they were going to break the news. They were trying to figure out that everything you have is burnt down. And they came to him, and he got up, and he made a bracha. He made the blessing. Blessed are you, O Lord, who didn't create me as a pagan. Mm-hmm. So they said, why did you make that blessing? He said, if I was a pagan, my God would have burned down too. <laughs> okay. I gotcha. Um, let, let me just but, say on this. For, but I, yeah, I, I, I think that there's, there's real value to that. In other words, if if we're totally invested in our work and it's our entire identity, when something goes sideways, it's the very foundations of who we are, what we are, starts to crumble. You know, if you if it, I once heard a, 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 somebody came to me that we had a, a fellow who's suffering from cancer. And he, he, he went to a rabbi, he went to a very holy person, and he asked him, he said, how do you understand, you know, suffering? So he said, um, you know, my suffering, your suffering. So he said, I've never suffered in my life, the rabbi told him. He said, but how could that be? He said, you know, if you drop a pebble in a glass of water, it makes a big ripple. If you drop a boulder into the Indian Ocean, it just disappears. He says, are you a glass of water or are you an ocean? Wow. And I think that when you're a believer, you know, part of what we do is we earn a living. We try to give charity, et cetera, et cetera. But our faith is we are so much greater than that. We, a Jew lives in multiple worlds, right? We live in this world and we live in the next world. When we, you know, when Abraham wanted to be buried, he was buried in the Marat HaMachpelah, the, the, the cave of the many folded cave. Mm-hmm. And it's really, it's really a metaphor for who we are. In other words, we live in this world, we live in another world. We have Shabbosim and we have Yom Taifim. We have mitzvahs that transcend beyond any heaven. They go beyond time. They go beyond the 14 billion years of this universe. So we live in so many worlds. And 
that knowledge allows us to put money into perspective. It allows us to put suffering into perspective. It allows us to put failure into perspective. And even though I wish on all of us that we should never have to use those perspectives, right? But one of the importances of business is, you know, for most people, the single largest impediment to success is fear, fear of failure. But knowing that failure doesn't necessarily mean failure. I can fail and still be a fabulous person and still be attached to a God. I am bound so much higher than this particular failure. And that knowledge allows us to traverse the very narrow bridge and come to the other side without that fear overwhelming who we are. Wow. So so what you're saying to us is, is that it's not as though your religious observance, you know, help you figure out a way of, I don't know, making more money, closing another deal. But what it's done, essentially, what I'm hearing is that it's given you perspective on life. It's putting your work, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but this is what I'm hearing. It's put your work into a larger perspective of what's my purpose in this world, such that if something would go sideways, as you say, uh, you would be able to uh, deal with it in, in a much better way. Um, I thank you for that. Um, Tell us a little why you started your podcast. And I'm a huge fan, and I actually have an interest um, in getting more of my students from MGE to start listening to your podcast, um, because I, I, I think it's one of the only um, podcasts out there that's actually dealing with the real questions of our time from a purely Torah perspective. Tell us why you started it. And I have another question on that, and that is, how do you make the time? I mean, I just started this podcast. It is definitely taking time, and yours is extremely well done. I see a lot of thought goes into it. You've got Bliyan Hara, beautiful family. I know you do a lot of Torah learning for yourself, teaching. Your work is huge. How do you have time? And tell us a little about the podcast. Okay, so I'll start with time. You know, Apple has a feature now, and I imagine Google does it too. It's called Screen Time. And... <clears throat> I read someplace that your average American spends over five hours a week on his Apple. Five hours a day, I apologize, on his yeah. Apple, right? Yeah. Which means that we, we just have so much capacity of wasting time. And, you know, beyond religion, I think that time management, you know, my son told me, he said, this fellow Zuckerberg, who is successful by almost any means, right? He only wears one outfit so that he doesn't have to, in every morning, waste three minutes deciding what outfit to wear. He only wears one outfit every day for his whole life, right? But that's about, so my point is, take a look while you're listening, turn on your Apple, go to, I don't know where the setting would be, is screen time this week and see how many hours you spent. And after you look and say, you know, do I really have more time? And, and so much of what we spend time on, I'm not even talking about games or movies or social media, but even what we think is real time, such as news, like can we really make a difference on whether marching on the Capitol was right or wasn't right, or whether he should be impeached? It's just like it's, it's the modern-day way of feeling we're doing something important, but we're doing something that's really totally irrelevant, unimportant. We don't make a difference. It's truly a waste of time. So I would... I would say that we can, I and we could probably do much more if we could figure out how to, all this noise that comes rushing. You know, we used to be able to close the door to keep the noise out. Now it goes with us everywhere, into, even into bed. But how would you, that's, that's really helpful. How would you um, advise people? Because, you know, we do need a break. You know, one of my Rebbeim uh, taught, you know, that, you know, the mission of Perkeavo, ethics of our fathers, of being Kovea Itzim Matorah, supposed to set aside time to study Torah. He once said, you need to be Kovea, this is Rabbi Lamb of blessed memory, you should be Kovea Itim Levatola, meaning you need a, a, some block of time where you're just chilling out. So how do you not allow that to morph into just what you just said, where we're just five hours or whatever it is that we get sucked into these, um, whether it's a social media device or anything else that starts out as a legitimate need for a break, but then turns into a waste of time. I would, I would suggest that it's very hard. It's sort of like dieting. It's really hard. But even if we if we understand, like, you know, most of us, if we're, if we're healthy eaters, you know, before we do something, we eat a piece of strawberry shortcake, we look at it and we say, hey, I know I'm doing something wrong here that doesn't make a lot of sense for me, for my longevity, my health, you know. But I think if we just looked at it and said, you know, all we have in life is our time. We're given X number of millions of minutes and then they just disappear. And we just says, is that gift of, of that minute, is it really worth what I'm going to do now? And then do it. But just, I think the awareness, and I say again, it is really hard. It's like dieting, but that awareness, just being aware that you're basically taking 
one tiny slice of the most valuable thing given to your life and really spending it on Nancy Pelosi. And you say, do I really want to spend this much of my my very rare and precious time on you know, Schumer, Pelosi, and whatever other psychophants that, you know what I mean? Like, do you really need that? And I, I just think just, just bring, raising the awareness of it may help. You didn't mean to just mention all Democrats there for a reason, did you? No, I, 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 I have, I, I'm, 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 I'm impartial when it comes. You could pick out, um, right, right. Pick just... your favorite, pick your favorite Republican. I don't think they're that. Right? It's just totally they. And 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 tell us the podcast. What 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 got you to? Want I to think, do? I think that for me the podcast is is that every day we make a blessing. We say v'tein chalkenu v'torasecha. Lord, let me find the portion, my portion in your Torah, and. Somebody once told me a good metaphor. He said, imagine if um, you tell a joke to somebody. You have a really good joke, and you tell it to your friend, and he laughs. And then you would repeat it. And then we get up in front of an audience, and everybody's rolling with laughter. Think of your favorite joke. Then you stop, you take a pause, you continue a speech, and you make the joke again. You're, not, you're barely going to get one laugh. And the third time, they're going to think you became insane. Mm-hmm. right? But just imagine you tell that joke, and you laugh. Then you have a, another engagement the next day to speak at another dinner, and you say it over again, and everybody laughs. And you laugh too, and you laugh genuinely. And then the next day, you have a bar mitzvah that you have to speak at, and you say that joke to a different group of people, and they laugh, and you laugh. And you're not laughing disingenuously. So why do you laugh? You've heard the joke three or four or five times. You've said it. And the answer is, is that when they hear the joke, they're hearing the joke, and the second time it's not a joke, and there's no more surprise. But when you say it, it's not just you, it's not you're not necessarily laughing because of the humor. You're laughing because of where you are giving it over and inspiring and connecting to these people and their laughter. So it's where you are finding yourself in this joke, right? And it's the same thing about the Torah. The Torah is a little bit like a mirror, you know? If a, if a beautiful person looks in a mirror, they see something beautiful. And if a donkey looks in the mirror, he sees a donkey. So... Torah gives back to you what you put into it. And as humans, as Jews, as as intellectuals, as people of spirit, our obligation is to find where does the Torah speak to me? And everybody will speak to in a different voice. And our job is to find that voice where it speaks to them and to keep on inspiring us how to look in the mirror as attractive and well made up and to just get the most we can out of it. And so like something like the podcast, which is for me is one of the things that interests me in, is, is, con- is contemporary halacha, contemporary law, and how it relates to society among us. The way to get inspired was to bring on some of the brightest intellectuals we could find, debate, discuss. So it's really about me finding my portion in the Torah and sharing it rather than doing a podcast. Well, that um, that comes through. And by the way, everyone listening, the name of the podcast is called Headlines. And if you want to know, um, so I'm going to bless you, some of the um, just one of the greatest scholars of our generation are interviewed on this podcast by David Lichtenstein, trying to answer questions um, about COVID and mundane things about going into Starbucks, kashrut issues. If you're a Kohen flying on a certain airlines that might have somebody who is uh, um, uh, someone who's deceased, uh, masks, anti-maskers, it's, it's got everything. It's really amazing. I just wanted to actually mention that um, I actually wrote down this phrase, finding your portion in Torah, there's an absolutely beautiful, or Chaim HaKodesh, who's one of the great Kabbalistic commentators, that said that every human being has a body and a soul. He says, but every Jew has not only a body and a soul, the third component, which he calls a chelik ha-Torah, a me'ureset l'chol Yisrael, which is a portion of Torah which is betrothed to each and every Jew, and that according to our Kabbalistic tradition, every Jew has some aspect of Torah which is connected to their soul. And he goes on to say that if whatever reason a particular Jewish person does not find their portion of Torah, it becomes avud me'olam. It becomes lost from the world. It's not like I can, you know... If I'm sitting next to somebody at dinner and they're not eating their dessert, I can have a piece of their cake. I'll use your portion of Torah if you're not using it. It was really designed uh, for everyone. And of course, that's one of the themes of MJE is helping young people find their portion in Torah. So I really appreciate that. And I love how you've developed a podcast that uh, helps you (laughs) find your 
portion of Torah. And if you're, you know, you said to me privately, when you're passionate about something, you put it on the podcast and you get behind it. But but if not, it's, and it doesn't speak to you, then you don't think it's going to speak to others. I just want to switch gears a little. I know it's getting a little later, and I really, really appreciate your time, certainly after that whole talk about time. Um, you know that I've devoted myself to combating intermarriage and assimilation. Uh, what would you say to someone who found true love with someone not Jewish? I would say that that's a complicated question. You know, it says when, when Moshe, when Moses sees the burning bush, God tells him to take his shoes off. And I think that the metaphor is that a bush, a tree, in both in Judaism and in literature, often represents the man. Man is a tree in the field. So he sees a burning bush represents pain, human in pain, which referred probably to the Jews in Egypt, etc., but a suffering person. And it says, when you see somebody in pain, take off your shoes, tread very carefully when you're talking about the pain of other people. That would be my, my uh, precursor to this discussion. Mm-hmm. And I would just look at it, look, just, you know, anybody who's religious today means that he is an unbroken chain that goes back all the way to Abraham, right? Which is close to 4,000 years, right? Which is in itself something very beautiful. I remember I once flew back from England and I was sitting next to, a, a, you know, a, a patrician, white-haired, extremely elegant elderly woman. And we started talking and she was uh, like 38th in line from the, from the crown in, in England. <laughs> and she said she could descend, she could, she could follow her ancestry all the way back to Richard the Lionhearted, which is around the 12th century, right? And I looked at her and I said, that's fabulous. I said, because as Jews, we really value, you know, and she was, she, she put in a, a line about American and mostly Mongols, right? <laughs> right which is true. <clears throat> so I said, as a Jew, I particularly, we cherish that. In fact, I could, I could trace my lineage back to Abraham, which is 4,000 years. And she was like totally taken aback by that. So, there is a real value to it. And when you think of it, it's not just that we could trace, track ourselves back that far, but it's many of those links on the chain did it um, under, it was life or death, like convert or else, or that type of, they, they died hanging from a cross because it was so meaningful to them. So the decision to leave or the decision to marry out is, is, uh, is something that, imagine breaking, you know, a handoff, an Olympic handoff with 4,000 runners. It's something very meaningful, hundreds of runners and you're the one. But <clears throat> sometimes people fall in love, right? And so how to deal with it? And look, you know, I think that Jared Kushner married out, right? Mm-hmm. And and I, I think we would agree with Trump, disagree with Trump, etc. She certainly has been, I would say, you know, has done wonders for Israel, peace in the Middle East, etc. And many times, if we, you know, somebody falls in love and the girl has an interest in Judaism, which often they do because many people leave vacant lives and I'm searching for meaning. Mm-hmm. So the Torah gives us a path forward. It says you can be, you can use this as, you know, part of your your dream and your mission and your purpose if she is wants to join, right? So that in that respect, the Torah gives us a clear as again, as as Jared Kushner, and I'm not taking whether he should or should, but at the end of the day, she has you know the all the peace, quote unquote, that may or may not be in the Middle East now. For large part, I would say has to be with Jared and probably her for that reason, right? He wouldn't be there otherwise. But then, then there's the other thing. Let's say you married, you, it's the disinterested girl, and you know, let's say your family had a very big business, and you were a proud scion of a large and you fell in love with a girl and you knew that it would basically put you out of the business or or you you know would destroy the family's business somebody would say wait is this really worth it when somebody marries out great part of their who they are will die if they don't if they it means they leave judaism and and i'm not talking about a finger dying i'm something a lot more greater than a finger and and given the ephemeral quality, ephemeral quality of marriage in the United States today, where 60-some percent end up in divorce. And, you know, you know, you can marry out, but a big part of you will die. Like a real part of you will die. Something meaningful, and, and that's a decision everybody has to make for them. 
the pro- the problem the problem we have is that um, you know, and I think you said it beautifully. Just, I mean, the reality is just people are falling in love today. People are not marrying out to, to rebel or reject the Judaism of their families uh, or of their ancestors. It's just you know they haven't really been given very much. Um, and then when you meet a nice um, non-Jewish uh, person and you fall in love, and you have to weigh the love against this kind of you know, I'm going to break this tradition. What tradition? You know, it's just uh, for for most American Jews, it's just basically nostalgia, uh, if at best. Um, you know, and that's the challenge we have. You know, that that's really why. You know, the only I'm, I'm always I ask everyone that question, and it's one of the most difficult questions. There's no good answer, in my opinion. I think you spoke to the issue beautifully, but um, the only antidote is is to give people a reason to stay Jewish, so that people will feel at least a little of attention. Uh, that's one of the things that I've seen. In the last 20 years of my rabbinate and my outreach work, that there is no, um, you know, people are not as bothered anymore. It used to bother the parents, used to really bother the grandparents and kind of bother the parents. And now even the grandparents are on board and they're just like, OK, happiness is more important than anything else. So, I mean, that's just what we're, you know, the, the real anecdote, as I say, is education and inspiration. What we're trying to do here, but, you know, and, and being part of a community. Um, we're very proud of the over 300 uh, couples who've met and married through MJE. It's an extremely uh, important part of what we do. But uh, we want to give people a reason to stay Jewish. Um, let me ask you another question. You kind of touched here and there on, you know, we live in very divisive times. And I'm, I'm concerned that the ortho- orthodoxy has become part of the divisiveness. Is there a kind of role that you think Judaism can play in healing some of the cultural wounds? Or is that, you no, know, the observant Jewish community is sort of lopped in with the people on the right. Everyone else is either progressive and liberal on the left, and we'll just have to keep battling it out. Is there any way that we can somehow get above the fray and um, uh, any kind of Torah ideals that we can teach to use to, and not simply to bring people more to the right, but but to show that we can somehow be unified? Because, you know, we're living in a very fractious world, and the more polarized the right and left get, the more difficult to be perfectly honest my job gets and the work that mge is doing because we're just looking more and more like extreme um i think that you know when, when we see religious people doing something and it seems wrong to us um it's very often they they are they just their god is different there is they're doing something wrong right but let me give you a few examples um in in judaism to embarrass somebody in public is the equivalent of killing them. So their face changes color, becomes white and red. In fact, there were opinions, and we don't, we don't obviously agree with that, that it's, it would be uh, a person should put their life at risk rather than hurting somebody else, embarrassing somebody in public, right? So when we see, you know, political figures in a debate ridiculing and laughing, and this is so an anathema to everything we believe in, right? In fact, what is, we have, Somebody once asked me, he says, you know, David, American law, what do we need religious law anymore? Like, what, what do you bring to the table? Mm-hmm. Do, not st- do not steal as part of the American law. Do not damage the other person. Do not rape. Do not kill. These are all laws. What does Judaism bring? But, and the answer is that Judaism is an entire level above that. It's an overlay. Yes, you cannot um, yell fire in a theater. But you can also, according to Jewish law, you, when you hurt somebody's feelings with your words, it's a transgression. You can't use your tongue to hurt somebody. And, you know, go on any of these many myriad of TV shows during the day. The heraldic, how they use, how they just slay people with their tongues, and people are roaring with laughter to laugh while another person is being hurt. To speak to speak ill about somebody behind their back is a transgression. We say, do not steal. Well, according to Jewish law, stealing, waking somebody, stealing their sleep, right? It's just overlays and overlays of fineness, of kindness that go way beyond what any law would require, right? And in fact, the famous dictum from Hillel was, somebody asked him, can you teach me the entire Torah while standing on one foot? He said, well, if you remember, don't do others what you wouldn't want them to do unto you. That's half the Torah. What does that mean? When we see... You know, these vicious arguments, these vicious partisan, you know, tirades and insults, we should look at that 
that's all according to our rule heretical. And if you see religious people buying into that, you should tell them, you really are missing. I think we just lost. So, so, you, yeah. Somebody called, you are not getting the message. Right. You know what I mean? You are just not getting the message. And, and you know, and, and if you grew up, if you grew up irreligious and you look at a religious person and his behavior is as such that seems to you to be morally wrong, hurtful, etc. You should go over to him and say, you know, you are not being religious. You're not getting your own message. Just right. because they're, they're a bit... So if, if we would live with Hillel's dictum, I think so much of the partisan behavior that we see today just wouldn't exist. I challenge anybody listening, just open up Google News, or if you still even use those old dinosaurs called newspapers, open up the front page, and what are you going to find? We should impeach, we should this. It's all messages of power, of hatred, of this and that. Just use that as an example. I mean, the man has nine days left in office. It's about strutting. Who can show that they're bigger? Who's the bigger maka? Who has what? These are all expressions of ego, of vanity, of pride, of power. 95% of this is against our culture and against our tradition. Yeah, I think that would be a wonderful thing for us to be teaching, given the acrimonious uh, kind of tone between the different sides in, in the political and just cultural divide that's happening. I mean, that, that was really well said. Thank you. Uh, let me I, share I, with you. Let me share with you a story. Please. I I had a a, a a a professor in Israel, a rabbi, who was a very special person, and um, they told me the following story about him. He had a daughter who was engaged, right? And the boy, uh, subsequently, he was to a brilliant boy. Um, was introduced to another girl, and he decided he liked her better. So three weeks before the wedding, he dumped this rabbi's daughter, he ran after the other girl, and married her. Right? Okay. And subsequently, this boy who was supposed to become the rabbi's son was obviously a brilliant scholar. Around five years later, there was a school that was interested in taking him for a professorship, a major position. And they wrote a letter to this to my, my the rabbi who he had been engaged to the daughter because he had studied under him. What can he say about the boy? And just think of the opportunity now, what he could have done. And he wrote a beautiful letter about the qualities of the boy. He said, I will not let my personal hurt get involved here. Wow. It must be about how he is. And then he showed it to three other people in the school to make sure that there was no leakage of his personal animosity or feelings into the letter that he wrote. Wow. That's a story yeah. about that's a story about Midot, about the, the most classic thing. Another story I'll share with you. I heard a beautiful story again about a rabbi who was, uh, you know, he, he he went to somebody's house and people he was in a, visiting in a city and many people came to to meet him and they they the the the, the, the hostess had made a kugel. You know what a kugel is? Like a small pudding. And she put it in front of him, and everybody expected, as a tradition, he would take a piece, and then he would pass pieces to people around the table. And to the astonishment, he ate a piece. And then he ate another piece, and, and he finished the entire thing by himself. <laughs> and people were looking at him that it was astonishing, and nobody understood it. And there was like a tiny little piece left, and one of the, his Hasidim, who was like really devout, took it into the kitchen. He said, nobody got it. I'm going to get it. He took the last morsel and he ate it. And he almost choked, right? The woman, instead of putting in uh, oil, had put in some type of like a liquid detergent. And he didn't want her to get embarrassed, so he ate the entire thing. Um, So I'm saying, look at the the people who we look up to in Jewish history as being great. Moses, what did he do? He sees two slaves are fighting. This is a royal prince. And he says, "I, I can't see this, right? He sees the daughters of Yitro, Jethro. None of them are Jewish, right? Being disadvantaged by other shepherds, and he steps up. Our entire history is about defending those who are being hurt, um, worrying about the feelings of others, the, the dignity of others. When you see it, and you see it not being tr- going against our history, I don't care what the person looks like, you say, you are not behaving in a Jewish manner. Let me ask you, Rib David, on that. Um, I had this last night with my students, and somebody asked me, how is it, you know, because I'm giving a class lecture on leadership, and I was specifically talking about Moshe Rabbeinu and his stellar personality traits and his refined midot. And one of the participants said, Rabbi, I don't understand how can so much of the Orthodox community, how could they have been supporting 
the president who, um, you know, exemplifies just the opposite and who has just personal character traits that are so below industry standard, you know, and I got into a little conversation, you know, and I shared that in back in, in um, 2016, you know, lots of people, not just uh, Jews and not just Orthodox Jews, had enough with evaluating character and personality in our political leaders. And they just said, everybody can talk a big talk. We're just going to look at actions. And a lot of the people in this country, I think, who voted for Trump, uh, I know a lot of people in the Orthodox community just said, I'm not so impressed with the character of either of the two candidates. In 2016, I'm going to vote for the ones whose policies are more in line with my interests or my beliefs. Um, and, and, and since Trump was so positive about Israel and so on and so forth, do you feel, therefore, just because of what we just discussed now? And, and I, got, I got caught up by my students last night. They're like, Rabbi, you just spoke for 45 minutes about how integrity and not embarrassing another person. So how could there be any support for a president who does not exemplify these or who goes against you know, can we make that split off? You think it's 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 appropriate for a Torah Jew to distinguish between the personality and the character of their person and their policies and just say, you know what, I'm just going to close, turn a blind eye to all these nasty things that he says or does. And but because I like the policies and the other guy, the other person is not so much better anyway. You know, but what's your feeling about that from a Torah perspective? I, I, I be perfectly honest. I really struggle with this. I think it's a, a very complicated question. So I think, it, and, and, and there's a lot of different you know, angles to it. So for example, do we see the, Amer the president as sort of a moral leader, as somebody who sets an example, or as, more as an executive? So for example, um, Elon Musk is incredibly admired, Tesla, etc. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think his, his, his wife, his first wife, we had five children with, wrote a letter on the internet that he paid her millions of dollars to take down, in which she said, I have five children with one of the wealthiest men in the world. We both got married as poor students. He, I was naive and foolish. And many years into our marriage, after the fifth child was born, he got me to sign over everything to him and I was left with nothing. So now I'm living with my five children in a rented apartment because he won't buy me a house, right? Mm -hmm. And she, she, you know, in another event, she said he has a perfect record. He's never, ever made it to one of his children's birthday parties, right? He's been married, this is fourth relation, fourth time, and he's just, a, as an individual, I don't know what's, so do we look at him and say, he's just an awful person, or do we say he created, you know, a, a new vehicle that could really solve the global warming, help solve global warming, um, et cetera. How do how do we look at these individuals? How do we yeah. look at at Jeff at Bezos, who because of him he's changed shopping forever? And I'm I use probably Amazon more than anybody. I I, I just never will walk into a store again if I don't have to. It's me. It's just a total waste <laughs> of time, right? And he's done just you know you. I ordered a, 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 sh a shoehorn for four ninety nine, and it came the next day. And I know when my office wants to ship something the next day, a letter, it costs nine ninety nine just for the shipment. Forget about getting the shoehorn too, right? So he's done just the most of And how do we look at him where he's texting pictures of private parts of his body to other women while he's married? So is the president the chief executive officer, or is he really a moral? Uh, so I think, you know, that's one. You know, a lot of religion, you know, the Jews will say, we don't look to him for any moral guidance. We don't care what he does, who he sleeps with. He's just a chief executive officer. That's just one debate. Another debate, and, and, I, and I don't have a position on this. I'm just showing you how complicated it is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, um, you know, and there are so many business leaders. I, mean, I, I, I think that, if I can just jump in, I just think that's a major, major question because we're still, I mean, I, I think we're an extraordinarily unforgiving country. Uh, we've lost the concept of tshuva, where somebody does something wrong, um, and if we feel they're contrite, you know, somebody then said, well, the president's never apologized for anything, he's clearly looking at him more than a COO. Uh, he's looking at him as a role model for our children, and therefore, how can we keep someone like this? And we have to teach our children nine days left. It looks like we're just being vindictive, but if we don't teach our children that we're going to impeach him after he let what happened ha happen last week at the Capitol then we're teaching our kids poor behavior. But I guess I guess it comes down to that question. Are we really putting him up like that? Um, is, is he just an executive uh, getting things done or is he supposed to represent the ideals of the country? Yeah, well, that's one debate. And I think, yeah. most, I think most religious people would say that we look at Moses, we look at Abraham, we're not looking for Donald J. Trump. For, 
But that that's what. But let me give you another day. Yeah. Let's assume that he is. Uh, by the way, by the way, I'm sorry to cut you off again. I think that's one of the reasons why so many people look at the president or politicians and take it so seriously because it's become a religion. Yes. Yeah. It's become. So look, now look at another debate. I mean, I had dinner with Biden around two years ago. Very mm -hmm. decent person, very kind, decent person who suffered a lot, very in touch. But on his coattails, right? Anybody who's been to an Ivy League school, I mean, somebody told me a story. He said <clears throat> he was in an Ivy League school and um, the, the prof he was taking a class in psychology, in a doctorate of psychology from a very famous speaker. There were, he said there were maybe two, three hundred people in the, in the, in the class. And this, the teacher was discussing why so many societies have a theory that, uh, uh, of, of, uh, of a marble, of a great flood, like ancient societies. And he said, so my theory is that um, many nations have some type of uh, like uh, a feeling of that they can be destroyed. And this is their way of dealing with it. He, he gave a whole psychological, does anybody have another theory? So there was one religious kid in the class. He got up and he said, maybe there was. Well, we just got cut off. Maybe what? Maybe there was a flood. Okay. And he said, the entire class started laughing. He said, the, in these schools... The concept of a believer is, it's, you could become like the center of jokes, right? It's, it's so absurd. To, to, you actually believe. I mean, you have old-time values. You think men and women should get married. You think people having kids. And all these moral BS. You actually believe in all this ancient. So hmm. he's not just coming in with, okay, I'm a much more decent person than Trump and I'm going to wear a mask, et cetera. He's coming in on his coattails and coming in the Ivy League and their beliefs and the hostility and their mockery of family values, of religious values, of you know, charity, of kindness. It's, 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 it's a whole pack. It's a bundle. It can't be, dis it can't be unbundled. It's like when you get from AT&T, they say, you know, the $59.99 a month includes internet, includes this, includes HP, and you can't unbundle. You can't say, I don't want that part. So it's, it, don't look at, at the man. Look at what is the whole coterie, the whole, uh, <laughs> the whole harem of other ideas coming along with it. The package so, deal. These are very so. These are very complicated questions, and to say that it's because they admire Donald J. Trump, I think that most of them, if they're any a scintilla, but like, you know, is this the end of religion in America? Right? I mean, that's you just got cut off the last. I, I, I said they, they would look at it and say, "Wait, it's not about Trump, but is this the end of religion in America? Like, is the is the most meaningful thing we should be fighting about our transsexual rights? Like, is that really?" The capstone of what modern thought, civilization, piousness is to protect the the, the, the transsexual. How many? It, it's just it's the absurdity of what's coming in along with it. It goes way beyond this one individual. He just happens to be the puppet that's that's unfortunately the spokesperson for such a large coterie of values that go beyond him. So these are very complicated questions. It is complicated. And, and you know, one of my students said last night that you know. Uh, she considers herself more progressive. She was uh, she was never a fan of Biden. She was a fan of Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders really represents a little more, or represented back in 2016, the more progressive, more liberal. Um, you know, Joe Biden is a more of a mainstream, if you will, Democrat. But I guess the feeling out there is that if you're in that party altogether, it's kind of like a package deal. You're it's coming along with that. I guess I, I, don't, I don't know. Um, he's been around a long time. We know what he has to say about all of these different, you know, I, I, I think the other issue is, and I wrote a blog about this. Can we learn in our society to value good things when not always so great people do that? So I think that one of the great accomplishments of Trump, which has been completely swept under the rug is the Middle East, um, peace treaties. I had Michael Warren on this podcast who was left of center and not a huge Trump fan. But he cannot, and, and one of the, I think one of the great scholars of our generation on uh, diplomacy and history, and um, and he said that these peace deals are unbelievable. The peace deal that Israel has with um, Jordan and with Egypt um, are they're cold pieces. You know, let's just stop killing each other. And thankfully, they've held uh, over time. But the new peace treaties that the Trump administration, as you mentioned before, Jared Kushner, Ivanka were able to, um, uh, my friend uh, Dove Greenblatt, Jason Greenblatt were able to conclude. 
These are actual cultural exchanges. I interviewed on this podcast also the chief rabbi of Dubai. It's unbelievable what's been done. So my question is, on the economy, all sorts of great things he did, can we learn to be able to say, Yishakach, as we say, you know, unbelievable and be grateful and, and, and despise what just happened last week in the Capitol? And like, or do we just say, you know, because that's what most of the country is doing right now. I don't care what good this man did. I don't care how much he improved the economy to let what happened or to inspire that kind of attack on the capital, however you want to, you know, um, describe that situation. I just I can't accept anything good. You know, my brother has this um, phrase, you know, OK, you know, Hitler played the harmonica. And I'm not trying to make, God forbid, an analogy between Hitler and, and Trump. But like, you know, would anyone say Hitler did something nice here and there? No, of course not. He was so filled with evil. Doesn't really matter. My personal opinion is that, you know, as long as a person is not the Hitler, okay, we're not talking about such an individual, that we need to learn. I mean, I think that's a Torah idea. Do you agree with that? Do you disagree with that? That we we can split, we can splice a little, and we can say this is great, and we have to be your toe? I think that the the um, the nasty left can, can hold a candle up to Mr. Trump, President Trump, any day of the week. You take the Pelosi's of the world, the vitriol, the hatred, the, the egotism, the nastiness. I mean, he does not have a monopoly on, uh, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. politics for the most part, is, it's a really nasty game, right? Yeah. And to, you know, the, the media is outside of uh, Fox 95%, you know, east and west coast, and it's only been solidified under the internet. And I think that, um, you know, take the Hitler analogy. I've seen that in the Times multiple times. Well, it's four years later. Hitler caused the death of 97 million people. How many people did Trump kill? It's, it's disparaging the Holocaust. It's disparaging all those who died. It's, it's, to call it nasty is the most, there are no words to describe the, the, absurdity of the mud and tarnish that they've thrown on him, notwithstanding the fact that he is not a very nice guy. Right. right? So yes, there's been no moderation, there's been no perspective, there's been but I don't want to talk politics, I always get criticized for it. <laughs> well I brought you into this. That's my fault. Okay. I just think oh we'll 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 turn it back to uh and I know you have to go I, I have I, I have a hard stop. I apologize. I don't I have a call with a in, in in one minute. So if we one can, minute. Maybe, okay. Yeah. So um, let let's end with your favorite piece of Torah. I I, I honestly can can we pick it up? Have a minute. You're okay. gonna, I don't have it. So if you want, I'll do next week. Or, or we'll do it another time. time. Let me take the twelve thirty, and I, I can't. Let, be let me take the next thirty seconds, though, David, to thank you. Uh, it's been such an honor meeting, getting to know you, and we really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your honesty. The one thing that you will never be accused of is not being straight and honest. And everyone, please make sure you put headlines on your podcast to hear more from the great David Lichtenstein. Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. And keep up the amazing, your amazing, wholehearted work. Thank you. Have a great day. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Wilds Cast. Subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. If you haven't already, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast Store. It only takes a minute, and when you do it, it helps others discover the show. Music from today's episode comes courtesy of Yosef Wilds. For more information about the Manhattan Jewish Experience, please visit our website at jewishexperience.org or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks again for joining us.